This is a Fubar Radio podcast. Go to fubarradio.com for more details. Fubar Radio presents. Fubar Radio presents politics on Fubar. You're listening to Politics on Food by Radio. I'm John Elledge. I'll be with you for the next hour. Uh, you know, one of the things I spend a lot of my time thinking, writing and generally being angry about in, in my day job at the New Statesman is housing. The need to have somewhere secure to live is, you know, it's one of the most basic of human needs. It's, I don't know if you've, you're familiar with the diagram of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that nice pyramid. But housing is, is right at the bottom of that. It's, you know, far more important than, you know, Wi-Fi. And yet, it's something that in recent years, this country has been struggling to provide. A, a generation ago, a majority of the British population could just about afford to, to buy their own homes. And, you know, if you couldn't, there was secure and affordable council housing out there for you. You might maybe live in dingy rented digs while you're a student, like you're in the cast of the young ones. But generally speaking, having a roof over your head was something you didn't need to worry about too much. Well, that's, that's changed recently. That's changed quite a lot. High house prices mean that the age at which people are buying their own home has been rising steadily. It's now into the 30s, I believe. The waiting lists for, for council housing have, have grown rather spectacularly, so that's not really an option for many people anymore. And also, there's, there's sort of a stigma attached to it these days, isn't there? There wasn't in the past. You know, once upon a time, council housing was seen as a, a universal welfare service. You know, something that was there for everyone if they needed it. And now, to be blunt about it, you know, we kind of treat it as if it's just an inferior option for, for you if you can't afford anything better. So now... A significant chunk of the population are stuck in the private rented sector, and they're there, you know, well into their 30s, well past the age where people are meant to be settling down and having kids and developing an interest in things like Volvos and garden centres and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people out there worry that they're never going to get out of the private rented sector. You know, it's it's often expensive to rent a house too, and it's it's insecure. You never know how long you can live in in one place. That makes it pretty difficult if you want to set down roots or have a family. I mean, imagine having kids in school when you have to move every six months. And, you know, while, while there are many decent landlords out there, there are also many terrible ones who are letting the properties decay. They're, they're refusing to fix problems with things like the boilers going bust. And, you know, if, if, if their tenants complain, they sometimes they threaten to evict them rather than actually fixing anything. So a lot of people, especially young people, feel like they're working their fingers to the bone to pay for someone else's mortgage and that there's no end in sight. So, you know, as I said at the top of this, I've been getting angry about this subject for, for some years now, but, you know, politicians, by and large, didn't seem that fussed about the situation. Until recently, in fact, a, a lot of politicians seemed to think that rising house prices was, was kind of a good thing. That, that sort of makes sense if you consider that, you know, for many households out there, it's still their biggest asset. It's so, you know, if you want the British population as a whole to get richer, you kind of want their house prices to rise. But it's not much use to you if you're one of the people who's kind of on the outside looking in with your face pressed to the window. Effectively, you, it's, it's just a mass transfer of money from, from the young to the old, which is not really what society is meant to be about, is it? Finally, maybe, that there are some signs that that might just about be starting to change. Uh, there's a guy from, from the housing charity Shelter called Steve Akehurst, who, who we're going to be hearing from later. He did a great blog a while back looking at how people living in different types of housing had voted in the recent election. He found that in, in 2010, people in, in that private rented sector were, were six points more likely to back the Tories than they were Labour. By 2017, the same group of people were more likely to back Labour by 23 points. In other words, by not appealing to renters... 
it may genuinely have cost Theresa May her majority last month. And that, you know, that seems like a pretty good incentive to take housing more seriously as a political issue. Then, of course, there's there's the, the horrific tragedy of the, the Grenfell Tower fire. It will obviously be a while before we, we know what caused that or exactly who, who is responsible. But I think it, it, we, what we can say is that it shone a light on, on underinvestment in, in Britain's public housing and on the poor conditions in which many people are living, even in one of London's richest boroughs. I don't know if anyone saw there was The Guardian reported uh, on Thursday that the Royal Borough of Kensington, Kensington and Chelsea actually made more by selling just two homes than it had sent on, spent on cladding for the Grenfell Tower. You know, that's, pretty, that's a pretty shocking news story there. So maybe, maybe the debate around housing is finally starting to change. Anyway, that's, that's the topic of today's show, housing and insecurity. Uh, coming up, you'll hear an extended interview with uh, Sean Berry, who's uh, the Green Party uh, member of the London Assembly and chair of the housing committee there. We're going to be looking at social housing, private landlords, uh, millennials buying housing and homelessness. And this week's debate question is going to be, how does renting need to change? If you'd like to comment on any, anything that arises on the show, you can get in touch. Uh, you can tweet us on at Fubar Radio, or you can email us on politics at Fubar Radio. Uh, talking of Twitter, actually, we've, we've put a poll out there asking how does renting need to change? So far, um, the most popular response is uh, with 40%, it's fewer arsehole landlords. So, you know, that, that's related to that. And the second most popular, 29%, is older people fucked us over. And possibly saddest, 24% say, I still live at home, sad face. So, so you know, it's some pretty strong, <laughs> some pretty strong views out there. Uh, coming up next, I will be reviewing the week's headlines with journalist Jacob Ferrudi, and we'll be speaking to him after this short break. Football Radio presents... Joey Page. It's time to welcome the lead singer of the excerpts. We do a game here, and it's basically yes. like a version of Top Trumps. Worst birthday present you've ever received, Murray? I received nothing one year. That's pretty bad. That is pretty bad, actually. <laughs> I'm just going to write in that in that box there, bleak. Needless to say, that was quite harrowing. So, Murray, should you should you win human Top Trumps today, you can have anything you like from the imaginary prize cupboard. I would really appreciate you guys to hook me up with oh? Margot Robbie. My producer said that she's married, but I don't know if you heard. He's a rock star. Every Wednesday. Joey Page. From 2pm. FUBAR Radio. FUBAR Radio presents. FUBAR Radio presents. Politics on FUBAR. Welcome back. I'm John Elledge. Uh, now we're going to be reviewing some of the major stories of the week and chat about what they say about the current political climate in this country. To do that, I'm joined by freelance journalist Jacob Faridi, who regularly contributes to publications including The Telegraph, The Huffington Post and Spiked. Jacob, thanks for coming to see us today. Thanks for having me. So you've, you've been having a look at the headlines, you've picked out a few, what, what have you got? Well, I think um, right now there's, a lot, there's so much going on, I think it'd be really important to have a little chat about what's going on with Grenfell. Um, yeah, it's kind of inescapable at the moment, isn't it's it? It's inescapable, but it's also just so bloody confusing because no one's really got a clue what's going on. Um, I mean, that links back to even the causes of Grenfell. We've had all this talk about cladding going on recently, and um, at the end of the day, we still don't know if cladding was the main problem. Um, so we've got that element of it, but we've also got responses to Grenfell. So we saw last night at a council meeting in uh, Kensington and Chelsea um, a couple of the victims of the tragedy um, really getting very angry at an election that was going on. It's really clear that this anger and this frustration just hasn't left London yet. And I personally think that's a great thing. I think this was an extreme 
tragedy that should be an embarrassment to any kind of 21st century developed nation. I and mean, we should still be angry. To what extent do you think the council have, have brought that on themselves with the kind of the fairly weak response they've, they've made to the crisis? I think there has definitely been a weak response made, and that's clearly not just you know exclusive to the council. I think we've seen that from the government as well. But when you listen to what these people from the tower are saying, it, I mean, they're not necessarily angry at the response, which clearly they are, but it's more so that they feel that they've been ignored. Um, and that isn't a recent kind of phenomenon. They've been talking about this for years and years, about how they've been pointing out problems in their kind of housing, and it just simply hasn't been fixed. Yeah, the fact that there were, there were literally blogs written by some of the tenants saying this this tower is a fire risk yeah. months before the event. Also, the idea that they're being ignored is not a, a concern that's likely to be assuaged by the council literally trying to physically keep them out of, of council meetings, is it? They're not. No, I mean, it, exactly. And I mean, I mean, we've got to take, you know, these blog posts um, with a bit of pinch of salt, though. I mean... People were pointing to how the tower wasn't particularly fireproof, but there's no mention of cladding, which is such, you know, that's dominated discussion at the moment. But I think that, I mean, you see within government strategy, there's a real patronising tone adopted by local government and national government towards people living in these kind of tower blocks. We look at, you know, a couple of months ago when um, the government was talking about banning smoking in these houses. We really see a paternalistic tone here where they're not taking you know, the people living in these houses seriously. It, it often feels to me like people in council housing are kind of treated a little bit like they're, they're, they should almost be grateful for what they're given rather than they're kind of, you know, customers or tenants to whom, to whom the council owes a duty of care. They're kind of just treated as, almost as a problem, I think. Um, completely. And they're, view, they're viewed as a problem um, that isn't capable of sorting itself out. So as I mentioned, you know, the government adopts a tone towards these people as if they aren't, you know, citizens who are capable of, you know, sorting out their lives, but as people who need nannying in various ways. And that's not just to do with the housing, but they adopt this nannying approach in their kind of lifestyle choices as well. Mm. I imagine we're going to be talking about Grenfell quite a lot in this show. But yeah. uh, let's, let's move the conversation on, <laughs> just kind of cover some other things so we don't get Grenfell overload. What, what else is interesting to you this week? Um, I thought it was very interesting um, what happened. It really dominated discussion all over social media with um, the Advertising Standards Agency looking to clamp down on gendered stereotyping adverts. So here we've got potential adverts. We've all seen the personal adverts. We know you have a woman cleaning up the, um, the dirty washing. Um, you see adverts with men with hammers and stuff like that, and you see a really gendered approach. Um, and the ASA is looking to clamp down on these, and they see it as a kind of ingrained sexism in the advertising agency. I mean, that, but that is clearly a problem, isn't it? I mean, like, it's, it, the, the messages that you see as a, a kid on adverts do kind of affect the, the way you view the world. I mean, surely this sounds like a pretty good thing to me. I mean, I, I gently push back against that notion just because I'm very wary of any kind of intervention regulation into what should be morally okay and what shouldn't be morally okay i think it's very well you know having these adverts and criticizing them and viewing them as completely ridiculous but you know as someone you know you know both males if you see someone with a hammer i don't feel particularly insulted as a i mean this is particularly orientated towards women i think that it's very patronizing to assume that a woman would see an advert you know such as the personal adverts where they're picking up dirty washing and think that, oh, right, this must be what my social gendered role must be in society. I think that, you know, it's very patronising to assume that people respond in that way. You think the, the, the response is more patronising than the advert itself? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I'd, I'd go along with that one, to be honest. I think it's... I, 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 I feel quite strongly, actually, that the messages we send to people through things like advertising or pop culture mm. are, are pretty important about how we portray the world. I think, you know, messages are all very well, but I think what this amounts to is a kind of moral posturing. 
um, which is all very fine, you know, to say that, you know, you believe in X and Y, but to try and regulate that in a kind of sponsored way where you're not allowing certain things to exist on television and radio, I think should be really pushed back by those who respect, you know, the rational capabilities of someone to watch an advert and not be completely pushed by it. Well, what else has been catching your eye? Um, well, we saw recently, um, yesterday, in fact, no, on Wednesday, uh, the Lib Dems have a new leader. They do. In uh, fact, and and in, a, in, a, in a stunning break with tradition, it's it's an old white guy. It's uh, it Sir Vince the, Cable. It is an old white guy. And I think even more shocking was that the Liberal Democrats, you know, who are you know Democrats by name only, it seemed, you know, would have a leadership election um, that was uncontested. I, I did kind of like the fact that even though there was only one candidate, they did still pretend they were having a contest and they didn't, like, Tim Farron did not step down early and sort of go spend more time with his, his family or his religious beliefs. He was quite happy to sort of hang on for the formal announcement like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's very, because it's a completely separate debate to talk about, you know, Tim Farron's decision to resign. Um, but I do think that you know, looking at the Lib Dems, um, they're, actually, they're treading on shaky ground right now by bringing in someone like Vince Cable. I mean, I think the election, it's something that hasn't been talked about since the election, is actually the state of the Lib Dems and how they have been relegated to a complete different league in comparison mm. to the two leading parties. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's something that's kind of been under-discussed because they did actually sort of increase their total of MPs, but they still lost... It's quite about half their existing seats, and they were down to quite a small share of the vote. They even, weren't they? I mean, they even um, their their vote share this year was fewer than back in 2015. And you look at, you know, they've got 12 MPs. Five of them are currently sitting in seats where, if there was a less than five percent swing in the other direction, they would lose their seats. So the Lib Dems might like to, you know, posture about having 12 seats, but they're on really shaky ground right now. There, there, there are actually a significant number of seats, I think, where they which they held in 2010 where they were third or even fourth, which is, I mean, I, I think it's actually quite easy to think they're in a much better position than they are. Do you think, do you think Sir Vince is the man to kind of pull them out of this funk? Is he going to lead a sort of Macron-style centrist revolution? I, I, I can't see Vince Cable reigniting the masses. But I, I mean, I think that's not just because it's, it's Vince Cable who isn't the most charismatic of men. You know, he's putting out all these amazing videos on YouTube about how he loves ballroom dancing. Um, don't I, we all? Uh, who doesn't? Um, but I think the point is, is that the Lib Dems as a political party, I think, you know, they're not going to come back from this. I think that the way that they position themselves within the general election, presenting themselves as the party of the 48%, really didn't work in their favour because they completely misunderstood that the 48% ceased to exist um, on the 24th of June. Hmm. And they really failed to recognise that there's, there isn't this kind of... Um, you know, for lack of a better word, Ramona element in politics right now. People are very keen to get on with it, and I think that's where they really shot themselves I mean, in the it, foot. It felt to me like they were kind of getting squeezed a bit because in, in a lot of their more rural seats were the main threat of the Tories. Actually, they all voted leave. Mm. And in the urban ones, even though there's a lot of Remainers there, people are still kind of angry about the coalition, aren't they? So They're, they're still angry about the coalition, and even though you know, we have large swaths of people who voted um, to remain, these people are now really keen to get on with it and to you know, make, get the best kind of Brexit possible. And the fact that the Lib Dems are so kind of anti that and are calling for a second referendum, I and mean, Vince said yesterday that he wants an exit from Brexit, um, is a real politically dangerous move for them. And I don't think it's going to pay off. Well, Brexit's a whole, a whole different show. We could talk about that all day, but uh, sadly, we must, we must leave it there. Thank you, Jacob, for joining us today. Thank you. Coming up next, I will be starting our conversation on social housing by speaking to the Green London Assembly member, Sean Berry. Ah, but before that, though, let's let's cast our minds back to the events of last month to to introduce the topic of social housing. We felt it was important to hear a reminder of how both the Prime Minister Theresa May and Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn responded to the Grenfell fire in June. 
The support on the ground for families in the initial hours was not good enough. People were left without belongings, without roofs over their heads, without even basic information about what had happened, what they should do, and where they could seek help. That was a failure of the state, local and national, to help people when they needed it most. As Prime Minister, I apologise for that failure. The Grenfell Tower residents themselves had raised concerns about the lack of fire safety in the block. The Grenfell Action Group had warned, and I quote, It is a truly terrifying thought, but the Grenfell Action Group firmly believes that only a catastrophic event will expose the ineptitude and incompetence of our landlord, the Kensington and Chelsea Tenant Management Organisation. Right now, our focus is on supporting the victims, finding homes for those made homeless and making sure this country's housing stock is as safe as possible. But as we move forwards, So we must also recognise that for too long in our country, under governments of both colours, we simply haven't given enough attention to social housing. And this itself is actually a symptom of an even more fundamental issue. Mr Speaker, it shouldn't take a disaster of this kind for us to remember that there are people in Britain today living lives that are so far removed from those that many here in Westminster enjoy. That in this tower, just a few miles from the Houses of Parliament and in the heart of our great city, People live a fundamentally different life, do not feel the state works for them, and are therefore mistrustful of it. What we need is a step change in our attitude towards housing in this country, to deal with the permanent housing crisis that so many of our constituents and residents face. And we need government intervention to support local authorities in bringing about safe solutions to the housing crisis, so that uh, this tragedy can at least change our attitudes and at least say, as a country, we are seriously going to address the housing situation that so many people face. Those people have died. They will never come back. We have to learn those lessons to make sure this tragedy is a turning point in our whole attitude and never again do people die needlessly in a towering inferno, living in poverty, surrounded by a sea of prosperity. Welcome back to Politics on Foobar with me, John Elledge. Today we are talking about housing. And next we're going to talk to the Green London Assembly member, Sean Berry. So you you were the Green Party's candidate in, in the London mayoral election last year. Yeah. Um, so you would have been speaking to a lot of people out there out, out there on the ground. How, how big an issue do you think the housing crisis is in, in the capital at the moment? It's absolutely huge. I mean, it was during the mayoral election. Everyone was raising issues around uh, affordability of housing. The renting lobby, obviously more and more Londoners rent now. People are stuck in renting for longer. They mounted a huge campaign around the election. Uh, Those issues haven't gone away. And obviously estate regeneration was becoming more and more of a thing um, as, as time was going on towards the election. Since then, we've seen some huge new developments on that issue too, we've got the the Haringey development vehicle. We've seen um, you know, more and more about the impact of places like Haygate. The Aylesbury estate's been a big issue, and of course, the the Grenfell Tower uh, disaster has brought home the actual huge consequences there are. You know, it's not just about affordability; it's about people's fundamental rights to live in a home that's that's safe and secure. Um, these are massive issues for London at the moment. It sometimes feels to me like, like particularly national politicians have been quite slow to wake up to the importance of this, this issue. Why do you think that is? It's nationally, it's, it's an interesting one. The, the governments we've had, the coalition government and then um, the Conservative government on its own, they've liked to announce 
big numbers. It's like their approach to any kind of infrastructure, basically, and that's how they see housing as, as infrastructure. So they'll announce big funding deals um, and big initiatives at national level, but they'll leave it entirely up to local councils to deal with the details. And actually, some of their details um, are just things that will set up the policy to fail. So reliance on uh, home ownership as the model. So they, they, are, they say to people, you can build new homes, but they've got to be for shared ownership. They've got to be um, you know, help to buy schemes. They've got to be affordable at the levels of 80% of the market rates. None of these things actually work in London. Um, so we've seen a complete slowdown in both house building, but also the availability of homes uh, versus the demand for homes. So the price of rented homes is shot up there's so much wrong and so much could be done better with a bit more devolution or a bit more attention to detail when they're drafting the policies in the first place and realizing what doesn't work uh, in, a, in london where the house market is it's a market as well as being a service to people to provide homes which creates absolutely unique pressures and has driven up costs beyond beyond what almost anyone can afford i'm looking at I was down in the uh, Olympic uh, site yesterday, and there, the affordable homes that are on, on for rent are, are being charged at rents that even I can't afford. And I'm now a London Assembly member. I've got a really good salary. And I'm looking at those homes and going, well, who on earth is going to be renting them? It's literally just going to be people from the city renting these homes. Uh, and it's not going to be providing any of the benefit that was promised for the Olympic sites in the boroughs around, which are, you know, Hackney, Tower Hamlets, Newham. These are places that need genuinely affordable homes you can afford on an, on an average salary not even a good salary like i'm on so what do you think we need to do to get the affordability of renting down to a level that <laughs> where affordable housing actually is affordable well the mayor's made a start um with his new policies he's actually redefined what affordable rent is uh, he's created a new measure of a, of a living rent which is the intermediate rent which is way way lower than 80 percent of market rates and it's tied to wages and that's a really important thing with market rates going up and up and up 80 percent of market rates just outstripped what people can afford almost immediately that boris johnson created it so we've now got a measure called london living rent which is about a third of the median wage in a local area there's flex so you can be 20 percent above or below that depending on local conditions in a ward but it's, it's a much much better measure it's the sort of measure sort of rent people could actually afford is, is this um, just talk though or is this something that we're actually seeing on the ground yet? well it's a definite exactly it's a definition um which is useful we can start to when we write the new london plan include that as the requirement for new developments where the mayor isn't putting in funding for now he's only really able to do it um when he's putting in grants he can use it as a condition of a grant and the problem with that is again national government obsessed with home ownership has said that london living rent homes must only be uh, provided by grants as a step on the way to home ownership so you've got this weird policy where you've within 10 years the person who's renting the home is supposed to be trying to buy it so it's it's that won't work but at least we might get some people into some homes that they can afford in the short term um it really does need sorting out in, in the long term though but but the London plan can make a difference because it can make the requirements on any new development, one that's not just coming with grant as well. Um, we were also putting in, uh, the Mayor started to look at viability in a much more serious way he's published uh, guidance uh, planning guidance on um, 
how you can assess land value, which is different, which will put a lot more scrutiny and, and transparency into the viability process. And that's been, for, for a housing campaign, a, a massive bugbear for years because it, viability assessments, the, the amount of profit that a developer can get and, and how many affordable homes they can genuinely afford has been a, a very dark art for a very long time and we've had no oversight of that. It's been impossible but, to get but something, of agreement. something I think we often hear from developers is that they just they, they need to make a profit. They can't make the kind of profits that they need to survive if they have to provide affordable homes as well. I mean, how, how do you, I'm, I'm sure they, they have no reason to lie about that, do they? I mean, how do you respond to that? Um, yeah, when they say profit, <laughs> they are talking about you know, short-term profits over the course of a development, which can be like three to five years, um, of more than 20%. And actually, it's 40% in a lot of cases. I think the average is something like 22% now. It might even be higher. That's probably about a year since I got that, that figure. Um, that's a lot of profit to make. Um, and it, developments like that won't, because they're short-term, they won't take a lot of um, risk on board either. So de- developers want that profit guaranteed, so they'll actually budget for more profit even so that really does lead to them being able to say for a site that's like in central london where they're going to be selling homes for over a million pounds oh we definitely can't afford to put any affordable homes into that development but, and I mean, that's it, incredibly it, frustrating to hear um, it, it is easy to be to be cynical about this but i mean we, we're not building enough homes we are dependent on developers to to do that is no there, we're not dependent on developers are we not? <laughs> that's, no this is the thing so developers their model they're 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 capitalist model, sorry to sound a little bit communist there, their capitalist model of wanting to get that level of profit in the short term is not the only way of, of, of getting investment for, for housing. Actually, there are people out there, there are pension funds out there who are perfectly happy to take a long-term, much slower return on investment in exchange for um, certainty over the the course of their investment. So there's a there's a project. Just everyone should look up the Camley Street Sustainability Zone proposals because they are really good. Um, there you've got local businesses and local um, neighbourhood forum people living on the estate next door who want to develop a piece of industrial land to preserve the business space and put up 600 affordable homes. Um, it. As part of a development, they can attract in developers who are happy to take rental income as a return, a small profit over time, um, and, and actually put the, the capital in up front to fund that project. Okay, That's so there the are, kind of thing that you can do. And it's community-led housing. Okay, so there are um, other sources of cash out there. ownership forever. It's only, yeah. it's only investment that you're looking at. These are different ways of doing it. And it's really hard to get anyone um, in the government or even in the mayor's office to look seriously at these alternatives. They think of them as small-scale, little things you might do with some of the small sites, sure, sure. but actually they can be done at scale. Well, but I've got to ask, though, where are we going to do this? Because, I mean, obviously you're, 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 you're from the Green Party, you're very big on, on green space, but we just don't have the land in London for, for the houses we need, do we? Surely we need to be looking again at, uh, at reviewing some of the, the scrubbier bits of the Green Belt, right? We, we have about a 15-year supply of land, um, and I think that's quite enough to be going on with um we should be looking at using a lot of the the land that we have in in the supply coming forwards is public land we've got an awful lot of transport for london land the police in the last week or so have put out their plans to rationalize their estate they're talking about closing most physical police stations moving a lot more operations online and onto police officers while they're mobile that's an awful lot of um estate as well those 
sites could be used for community-led projects, for projects that, that aren't, you know, not profitable, but are not short-term profitable according to the model of the big developers. We've got a lot of opportunities to do the kind of thing I'm talking about and provide a lot of homes. And once we get going with that, I think, you know, that's where communities, where other groups will start to see that model and that example, people like co-ops, they'll be able to join in too. It, it, it's, it's a win-win to, to get moving on this with some of our public land. I, I can't let you go without asking uh, your views on, on the Greenfield situation. I mean, do you think that that is going to change the tone of the debate around, around social and government-owned housing at all? It has been such a shock, I think, um, even for the, you know, the most die-hard conservatives, the most developer-friendly Labour councils to see what's happened there. I think they've realised that you know, these kinds of deals, these kinds of actions, cutting corners, leaving everything to big private companies who perhaps aren't very accountable, has consequences. And I think we, we are seeing a change. Certainly Camden is where I'm a local councillor and there we've had the same problems. We haven't had a fire, thank goodness. Um, but we've had blocks sitting there in a very, very unsafe state for many years thanks to a big PFI deal that was done. Uh, The transparency has been poor, residents have been raising issues not being able to get to the bottom of what's been going on Uh, and this kind of thing has to change and the council are already starting slowly to become more transparent about these kinds of issues. Perhaps things are finally going to change so um, Sean, thank you very much for joining us today. No problem. Coming up next is our studio discussion on the housing crisis. We're going to be joined by Tom Copley, the Labour housing spokesman in the London Assembly, Tom Follett, a policy manager from Respublica, and Charlotte Hughes, the Morning Star writer and author of the blog The Poor Side of Life. We're going to be asking how this renting needs to change. But first, our reporters took to the streets of Islington, uh, where, where Food by Radio is actually based, to ask what the general public think of renting in London at the moment. I think it's just so expensive in London, it's like completely unfeasible, especially as a young person, I've just finished university and I can't move out and people that I know, they don't move out till they're 26, 27 now, so I just think that they need the whole price, it just needs to crash and then like fall down again, basically. Maybe cap the rent like in France, that would be good for people that have a budget and might not afford places in central London. I think that there needs to be more support for young people that are trying to get out of renting or maybe subletting and wanting to buy their first time housing. Currently I'm trying to do that and it's incredibly difficult and there's not much support or information out there. I think that aside from the price of it all, I think too much importance is placed on people's credit rating and the amount they're spending. Obviously people come out of uni with debt etc and I think it's just one extra thing to worry about even if they don't rely on it it's just I think it would be easier if they accepted that young people will have debt it's a bit bleak you have to be pushed further and further out and you get much less for your money yeah it's just the way it is isn't it welcome back to politics and fubar I'm John Elledge and today we are talking about the housing crisis uh, now it's the debate portion of the show and we're going to be discussing how how renting needs to change to talk about that I'm joined by three terribly clever people uh, who are going to tell us what our leaders should be doing about it. First up, we have Tom Copley, the Labour member of the London Assembly, who's also the party's housing spokesman. How are you doing, Tom? Afternoon, not too bad, thanks. We also have another Tom, that's Tom Follett, who's a researcher from the think tank Respublica. Good to have you here. Good to hear, be here, John. And lastly, down the line, we have someone who's not in Manchester and hopefully not called Tom either. From Manchester, we have the Morning Star writer Charlotte Hughes, who also writes the blog The Poor Side of Life. Hey, Charlotte. Hi. 
Okay, so good to have you all here. Um, Tom Copley, if I could kind of start with, with you. Uh, you're a politician. You speak to, to people out there. They, they complain about all their... They pour out their, their whole heart and soul to you. How bad is, is renting in London at the moment? How terrible is it out there? Well, I mean, I also speak as someone who is a private renter. Uh, I've, I've rented from a private landlord uh, ever since I was at university. And but it, you're a politician. You're meant to be loaded, aren't you? Well, what are you doing in real life? I know. I've clearly made some bad decisions, haven't I? But you, you probably had... I, I was listening to Sean Berry, my colleague, earlier, and she also, uh, uh, despite being a politician is renting from a private landlord and, and what that sort of shows I think is now that the crisis in renting is not just something that's affecting the poorest in society it's something that is, is affecting people uh, who are on uh, middle to higher uh, incomes and I think a lot of people from sort of my generation, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 32, uh, look at the previous generations you know, who were, were able to buy, you know, quite easily, relatively easily in the sort of 1970s, 1980s. Um, uh, and they're sort of qu qu quite uh, envious uh, uh, of that. Uh, and in terms of the private rented sector, we have one of the most unregulated private rented sectors in Europe, even in comparison to many American cities. Uh, you know, if you live in Germany, you you have an unlimited tenancy, you have caps on the amount that the landlord can increase the rent by. Um, and one of the things I, I most love about it is if your property isn't up to scratch, for example, your boiler breaks, your rent is cut until the landlord actually fixes it, which I think is a great incentive for landlords to actually get on and do repairs. You know, we uh, live on six to 12 month uh, tenancies, can be kicked out at two months notice. And it just can't go on like this, particularly given the growth in the sector and the number of families with children that need stability. We need longer tenancies and we need caps on rent increases. Tom Follett, we're, we're, we're seeing increasing numbers of people trying to raise kids in the private rental sector. Is, is that viable, do you think? Um, well, it, you know, it is unfortunate the reality. And um, in other countries, as Tom says, renting is, is much more widespread. But we also have to look at how the rental market is structured. And, you know, in Britain, we're a bit of an outlier because uh, many of our rental homes are owned by people uh, as part of their retirement fund or uh, to generate some extra income. And, you know, in Germany and other European countries, the rental properties are owned by uh, pension funds. Uh, so, you know, when you're paying your rent, that's going to pay somebody else's pension. Uh, you know, in Britain, we uh, not only have to pay into our own pension funds, but then the uh, rental properties are owned by landlords. So we sort of lose out twice. Uh, I guess the other thing is that um, the rental sector, uh, you know, we, we have many more people getting into renting today uh, in, in all sections of the market. And we also have people who are... Um, in, uh, in real financial difficulty going into the rental sector uh, because uh, council house tenancies, social housing, uh, you know, it's very secure. It's a, it's a long-term tenancy. Uh, and the people who can't get onto the social housing waiting lists are forced into the private rented sector, often in very poor quality um, with, with poor regulation. Um, and the uh, subsidies for people to go into the private rental sector have been frozen for five years. Uh, this means that people can't afford to live in their local area. They're forced to outer parts of London or to other cities. Mm, we're seeing people leave London altogether in many cases. Charlotte, um, I think there is always a danger in polit political debates in this country that we end up talking about London problems as if they're, as if they're national ones. So, I'm, so I'd like to ask you, how, how does all this look from Manchester? Well, to be honest, it isn't that much different, to be fair. Um, we have got a massive housing crisis in Manchester. We've got a massive number of homeless people a lot of them are young people and males, and we're now actually getting a lot of female homeless people as well. And more and more, because we've got a lack of social housing, a distinct lack of social housing, so we have no housing that anyone can turn to. 
it's only emergency cases that actually get housed into social housing. So everyone else has to look to private private rentals. Private rentals have massive guarantor. You need a guarantor, massive deposits. You can't afford them. And we do have a rent deposit scheme, but that's minimal and everyone can get that. We And young people aren't allowed to be housed anyway now if they're under 25. Or, mm. It's just so complicated. They have to stay with parents if they've got any. It is so complicated. Now, we've got also got the issue of people being sent from other areas to places like Manchester and the outskirts. And we've got no housing here either. Yeah, yeah, I think so, that's often forgotten when people are forced out of London. They're forced into places that are already facing their own housing crisis. Before, yeah. uh, Charlotte, I'm kind of curious. You know, you guys have, have recently elected your, your, your first mayor in Greater Manchester, the um, Andy Burnham, with his, his beautiful eyelashes. I mean, do you get a sense <laughs> that, that he is serious about changing any of this? Absolutely. I do think he is serious about it, although he can't work miracles overnight. Um, he is concentrated, and if you look on his Twitter page and on, on the news that he's actually been involved with, he is actually concentrating on homelessness. He set up a homelessness fund, which I'm hoping is going to actually link into all the local homelessness charities and organisations, and we're sort of like all gangs together in a way to help each other. Because there's a lot of organisations out there that aren't linked as, as of yet. So it would be fantastic when we do get this money together and get this organised and get it off, off the ground properly. I'm hoping it does help. Yeah. And it's also committed to building houses. Mm. Housing. Mm. Now, I don't know what they're going to be like yet, but... Well, we'll find <laughs> out, I suppose. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, let's yeah. face it, they're going to it's, be better than living on the streets, aren't this is, they? This is true. Tom, <laughs> Tom Copley, I mean, do you get a sense that politicians down here in London, are, of, of which you are obviously one, do you get the sense people are taking this more seriously now and actually ready to take some, some action to deal with these problems? I think that, I mean, many of us have been talking about these problems um, for, for some time, particularly uh, on, on the left. I think the Conservative Party might be slightly waking up to it now, simply for purely electoral reasons, which is that the number of private tenants is growing. Uh, the number of people who own their own home is shrinking. Uh, and there's, there's nothing like a sort of large uh, sort of group of the electorate to get angry about something, to get politicians to listen. So I think as we see the number of tenants, private tenants, continue to grow, we might start to see the Conservatives, which are a party which is ideologically opposed, as it is, to any sort of intervention uh, in the rental market beyond what we do uh, at, at the moment. We might persuade them to actually take some action. I mean, we are going to see a very small but important step which um, they're proposing the banning of lettings agency fees mm. which I'm absolutely delighted about having moved twice last year and, and probably paid in excess of £500 for the privilege to, to, to uh, lettings that's agency. Just, you're just handing over money for someone to like sign a piece of well, paper basically aren't you? Yeah, it's like, photocopy a contract and copy some keys uh, uh, if uh, that. Photocopying is an expensive business I suppose so you know it's like we, shouldn't, we, sh we shouldn't underplay I hear the cost of paper. I hear inflation in the lettings yeah. agency industry is, is astronomical so, I mean, you, know. you, you, you say the Tories are not keen on market intervention, and generally that's that's true. But there is a fairly big market intervention they're very keen on, which is the rules on, on where you're allowed to build. I mean, the green belt is a massive market distortion, isn't it? Tom, Tom, other Tom. Yeah, I mean that's a good point, and um, the green belt uh, forces people to live within it, within the bounds of the city, or further away out into the countryside and that's not actually very sustainable because then you've got loads of people driving into the city and pushing up um, the house the price of houses in rural communities um, and I guess the other thing is that um, the ideological shift around um, what the what the government should intervene in the housing market 
there's, there is a movement towards accepting that it's the government's role to build houses and to secure those houses for people. And um, in the recent housing consultation, the government has proposed being able to purchase land, fields or, or derelict industrial land for um, for the price without houses on. This is to say that they'd be able to uh, allow the councils to build cheaper houses because they wouldn't have to pay a massively inflated cost of land. So I think there is a shift that um, policymakers and, and I think tanks and so on have sort of put the case out there. And I, I think we're seeing the Conservative Party begin to shift. Charlotte, do you, do you think that the way out of this mess is going to be, it's going to involve bringing back uh, mass council building, basically? Is that what you want to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, affordable homes do not mean anything to a poor person. They don't mean, to, mean anything to somebody who's homeless, anything to a young person who hasn't got a very well-paid job. So, yes, we absolutely do need council houses, and we abs- we're desperate for them. It's, this is why we're in this situation now. The council houses that were sold off in Thatcher's time were not rebuilt. You know, we weren't given any back. So we're absolutely massively short of council housing. It's vital we get them back. We need them. Mm, I, I, I should tell you, Tom Copley is nodding so fast. I think his head might drop <laughs> off in a moment. Um, so it feels to me like there is a problem that we, we've financialised housing. We've turned housing from being um, you know, a bit of the public services or the welfare state or infrastructure even. We've turned it into primarily an investment. And it feels like it's quite difficult to undo that because if we could half the prices, uh, if we could half the, the the price of houses tomorrow, we would kind of be swapping a housing crisis for a, for a pensions crisis, wouldn't we, Tom Follett? Um, yes, I mean that is a concern that if the government took some kind of really drastic action that caused house prices to immediately flatten or decline, then that would have other repercussions in the economy. And I know that that's something that. Uh, the government are concerned about but that's not to say you can't do anything and for example in Toronto they've actually passed a law uh, banning foreign uh, uh, foreign buyers of houses who don't live in the city and this has really resulted in a massive uh, reduction in rental prices there so it goes to show that if you really want to take radical action there are things that can be done it was actually reported this week there is a development in in manchester in fact by piccadilly station where where they're specifically saying they're not going to let investors buy any of those homes to make sure they're there for the local community I mean, Tom Copley, do you think that can work in London? Well, I, I think that the mayor needs to be given new powers over this, actually, because um, he did a, he published a report recently which commissioned for LSE, which looked at the impact of foreign uh, overseas investment on property in London. It only looked at, at new development, by the way, which, you know, I, th- I think we also need to look at the buying up of existing properties as well. Um, but, you know, th- the fact is the mayor does not have the power to restrict ownership. I think we could be looking at a number of mechanisms. France has a property speculation tax, for example. You know, um, I think we need to be thinking creatively about what powers we might want from the government uh, about this. Um, but just g- going back to council housing for a moment, this is absolutely, th- this has got to be a huge part of the solution. It was the introduction of right to buy in 1980, which I think is the biggest contributor towards the housing crisis that we have at the moment. Because not only, not, not, not only um, I mean, the, the problem wasn't in and of itself people being able to buy 
uh, their home. It was the fact that the government actively prevented councils from replacing them. It was a political decision mm. because Margaret Thatcher didn't like council housing and she didn't like local authorities. Because people in council houses tended to vote Labour, didn't they? Uh, absolutely. And of course, many of those homes now have been bought up by private landlords. In fact, some research I did a couple of years ago found that uh, in London, uh, more than a third, 36% of all the homes that were sold under right to buy in London are now being rented out by private landlords at market rates, sometimes back to the local authority they were bought off at a discount from to house homes homeless families. We are in an absolutely ludicrous mess uh, and we need action from the government to sort it out. Something we've, we've not touched on yet is, is also housing benefit is by and large, basically it's just a huge government subsidy to landlords, isn't it? I mean... Do we need to be sort of thinking of that part of the equation, Tom? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. In the 80s, we moved from uh, the government funding houses to funding people uh, with the idea that that would then, you know, make it a more, a more personal approach. Sorry, when you say funding houses, you, mean, you literally mean the housing budget was spent on building new homes, right? Exactly, it was spent on bricks and mortar. Uh, and now we, we subsidise people to live in mm. rented accommodation and, and we're not building that increasing accommodation. But the wider point is that housing policy is kind of being torn between two directions. On the one hand, the government says the councils need to build more houses they say um, uh, and, and for example on social housing they say if you're going to be a high earner you can no longer stay in your social housing home but on the other they say well there's a right to buy so you can you can purchase your home um, and then they're saying to councils well you, you know if you're trying to build affordable houses and you're trying to circumvent the government regulated system of, of council housing well you can't do that either so there's a real sort of incoherence in the two directions that housing policy is going I'm shocked to learn there would be incoherence in government policy that doesn't sound likely to Charlotte, obviously the big housing story of the last few weeks has been the the, the Grenfell Tower fire. What impact do you imagine that that, that will have on the debate? It's going to have a massive impact. Uh, the, the government are going to have to act whether they want to or not on safety um, and accountability and actual building materials. Um, fire regulations are absolutely appalling because the government took them away. So we need to bring back old values, you know, the values that they had when the council houses were built. You know, it's, it's absolutely devastating for the government and they're, they're doing their very best at the moment to run around and to divert everyone's attention away from it. But we cannot be diverted. We've not only got Grenfell, we've got tower blocks all over the place and similar situations, even in Manchester. And this is an accident waiting to happen, you know. So... Absolutely, it's, it's a massive. It's, a, it's having a massive impact. And in my town now, I can see tower, tower blocks being checked, see whether they're safe. We don't know whether they're safe, you know. Um, mm. So it's it's a massive impact, and it's and everyone is talking about it. Everyone is talking about it. Everyone is asking, "Is my home safe? Is my house safe? My house has got cladding on it. Is my house safe?" It, you it, know? it also feels a bit to me like we've just. <laughs> As a society, we've not shown a huge amount of respect to people who live in social housing. No. It's kind of been treated Absolutely since the not. 80s as an inferior option, and, and maybe that's yeah. something we need to be rethinking. Yeah, absolutely. They took the value away from a person. A person is not worth anything to this government at the moment. The only thing that is worth money to this government is housing, something they can buy and sell. Um, if, if you house somebody, they've got, they're generally, their health generally improves, they generally become more productive and more happy and society functions a lot better when you've got decent housing. Uh, if you haven't, haven't got decent housing, everything just goes to pot, basically. You know, society starts to fall apart and 
this is what is happening now you know i mean t- tom copley do you f- get a sense from your work that that poor quality housing has a knock-on effect on well on other bits of the public services really on demand for health care and so on Absolutely. One of the reasons why I'm so obsessed with housing is is that the home is at the centre of people's lives. And if something's going wrong there, if the home is unaffordable, if it is, uh, if if there are problems in terms of the quality of that home, it causes huge knock-on effects. Uh, but in terms of health, both mental and physical, uh, in terms of um, children's education if there's nowhere for them to do their homework because they're living in overcrowded accommodation and there's knock-on effects for the economy as well because if people are spending all their money each month on rent they're not spending it in local shops and in local businesses there are many many reasons why if we start to get housing right other things will start to fall into place as well and that's before you even get to you know people worrying because they think that their home might not be safe and no one should be worrying that their home might not be safe. Mm. It's, it's an absolute tragedy, an absolute scandal. We, we should be wrapping this up, I'm afraid, which is a shame because we could honestly keep this conversation going on for, for well, days, but we won't put the listeners through that. Um, I'm going to ask each of, our, each of our contributors for kind of one sort of closing thought on where they think we should go from here. Charlotte, perhaps we could start with you. Absolutely. I think we should start thinking and talking about housing more talking and being in the conversation of council housing and demanding a right to have decent, safe council housing that is in a long-term tenancy, not short-term, and that is lifelong, you know, like we used to have. Uh, Also, we need to bring up the debate and constantly bring up the debate about landlords, about the high rental system, about how hard it is to get a privately rented place as well. And also, we need to start the debate about young people and they're not able to get a rented property. You know, so we really need to start getting this debate. We see more and more young people on the streets because of this. You know, and they go through college, they go through uni, some people, and then they've got nowhere to go. Sure, you know? sure. So we really need to start talking about that more. Tom Follett, do we just need to raise the profile of this debate, get get out there, get marching, do you think? Well, I mean, I guess what, what's interesting about the, the, the housing debate now is it's showing that you know, people's expectation of what the government's supposed to do for them changes over time. And in the 70s and 80s and 90s, it, it became something that the government didn't really owe to you and it moved sort of away from politics into sort of third bodies and things. But now people, now that it's a real issue and it's impacting people's lives, they're saying this is something the government should guarantee for me. It's, it's part of what I'm owed um, f- from our kind of social contract, if you will. So I think that it's uh, re- really returning to the central public life. Tom Copley, last word. We need direct investment in housing again, getting back to the state providing good, decent quality uh, homes and investing in the homes that already exist. Uh, and one thing the government has to do as a matter of urgency is lift the borrowing cap that councils face on their ability to borrow for housing. It's absurd that it's easier for a council to borrow to buy a shopping centre, and many are, than it is for them to borrow to build housing. You look at what's going on at the moment. There's a sort of quiet nationalisation of commercial property going on, but we need the ability for councils to borrow to build. Well, I would like to thank all our guests, Tom Copley, Tom Follett and Charlotte Hughes. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Coming up next, I will be speaking to the uh, Head of Public Affairs and Campaigns at Shelter, Steve Akehurst, who is, you know, no pressure or anything, Steve, but we're we're hoping you're going to provide us with some solutions here. Uh, To to introduce Steve, though, we're going to hear from a man who's been particularly critical of the housing market for for 50 years or more, uh, film director Ken Loach.
I think that it's the market that's driving up prices, a market that's driving up rents. I think we have to start from a different point of view, have to start from the point of view that it is a collective responsibility. We need councils or other um, government uh, public bodies to be empowered to build houses with direct labour, directly employing planners and architects, and building not only houses but infrastructure allied to work. And allied to work is central because then it's sustainable. There are 93,000 children, 93,000 children in temporary accommodation, B&Bs, sofa hopping between different support mechanisms. Their life chances are being crucified. FUBAR Radio presents... FUBAR Radio presents... Politics on FUBAR. Hi guys, I'm John Elledge and joining me on the line now is Steve Akehurst, the Head of Public Affairs and Campaign at the Housing and Homelessness Charity Shelter. Hi Steve, how are you doing today? Afternoon John, thanks for having me on. Thanks for, thanks for being here. So, I'll be honest with you, we've been talking a lot about, about problems in today's show. We've been talking about how, how secure div- housing is difficult to come by, how we've neglected social housing and how politicians have been a bit, bit slow to respond to all this. Yeah. I'm kind of hoping that you might be able to plug the gap and, and give us some solutions. How do we get out of this mess? Okay, yeah, well, I mean, fundamentally, it is probably, as, as a lot of your guests have touched on, about the, the shortage of homes but the, and the shortage of affordable homes. But the, oft, the answers you often hear punted around are not the ones that kind of will solve it in and of themselves. So planning gets talked about a lot. It's not really about planning deliberalisation. It's a lot about... Um, getting kind of land in particular into the hands of people that want to build the kind of affordable homes that we need. So that's the that's the, the bedrock of it. And then in the short term, it's about much stronger consumer protection for private renters, um, and as we've seen with Grenfell, for for people that live in local authority houses as well. So we've not only got a shortage of homes, but we've got kind of a really badly, um, a really badly kind of underregulated um, private rented sector as well, which um, can make the kind of short term consequences of the housing crisis feel a lot sharper for people i mean my my, my personal solution has always been uh, to build more bloody houses which you can, you can actually buy that on a t-shirt uh, if, if, yeah. if that's if that's I've your bag it. i mean it's oh you do oh there you go well, that's yeah. two of us um is it are you saying that it's not enough to build houses we actually need to be kind of looking at that, the, the rules on the housing that's really out there as well yeah sure i mean i, I do think uh, i mean it is foundationally about building more homes it's just the solution to that is not always about sort of just planning deregulation it's also about kind of the land market and messy things like that but you know there is um but there is also as i said a job of just getting the homes that we have now up to standard getting the the, so there's a kind of short term and a long-term challenge but no fundamentally right you are about it is it is about building more bloody houses but uh, as, as a as kind of boring as that might be. <laughs> but okay, let's let's talk about the short term because I, I mean, yeah. obviously, one of the big problems at the moment is that the, the private rental sector is bloody horrible. Let's be honest. Yeah. So, what would what would you and Shelter like to see us change to to make it a yeah. bit more viable? Is kind of a longer term option for people. Sure. So there's there's two things really. So the first the first thing is that there is no absurdly there is people do not have a right to uh, a decent home effectively or do not have a right to a good home. Um, so that, that, you know, there's just there's something that needs to be stronger in terms of the right for every private tenant to have a home that is fit for human habitation. That's just the basic, the basics. Um, which but which was also, something that was actually voted down uh, when, yeah. when someone suggested it in Parliament last year, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I think there'll be another attempt at bringing that back after Grenfell, which I think uh, may do may do better than last time. But that's that's just the the, the basics. Like there is just no uh, sort of. 
you know, it, it kind of standards in the private rented sector when it comes to mould and conditions and safety and all the rest of it are enforced by local authorities rather than properly by the kind of courts. So that's something that we need to change because local authorities just aren't able to do it. But also, frankly, the, the major problem we see people facing is, is instability and churn, right? People go through six to 12 month contracts. You've got people with 10 year old kids that have lived in nine different homes because they're having to move every year. Um, you know, so really the, one of the most foundational things we can do immediately is introduce longer tenancies as standard, four or five years. In Scotland, they're about to introduce indefinite tenancies as standard. So the private tenant gets to stay in the home for as long as they want, as long as they pay the rent. Um, Doesn't that have implications on, on you know, property rights if you're basically saying to landlords, well, you have to let this tenant stay there in your house even if you don't want them to? No, I mean, there's just, there can still be a bit of a kind of flexibility for the landlord. So, you know, if um, if they don't pay the rent or if maybe if the landlord wants to sell the home or whatever. But basically what we've got at the minute is, is a kind of a right and ability for the landlord to kick people out if they just fancy chucking the rent up 10% or whatever, which given how crazy the market is, the incentive is always for the landlord to kind of go for the kind of short-term price hike. Um, so what longer tenancies would give is just a bit more peace of mind for people that if they want to, so as long as they want to, they're, they're able to stay in their home. You can still build in flexibility for the landlord, but basically what it's about, John, is, is power in the market, right? So at the moment, power accrues largely to the landlord. Um, and we just need to even that up a bit. I mean, we've got the most insecure private rented market in Europe. There's literally no other country in Europe, I think, you, where you would have as much uncertainty sure. and insecurity. You, you guys have obviously been campaigning very strongly on these issues for a while. Do you, just as a last question, do you feel there's been any progress on this? Are politicians going to start taking this seriously now? I, I have to think this, John, otherwise I would uh, <laughs> I couldn't get up in the morning. I think, I think there, there genuinely has been. I know this is there's a lot of heat on all parties and particularly the, the government um, but actually there was the 2015 manifesto the 2015 conservative manifesto was a bit of a disaster on, on some of this stuff the 2017 manifesto was a lot better right so there's there's something in there about introducing longer tenancies um, which wasn't as strong as we'd like but it was genuinely positive they're banning letting agent fees and they said they'll ban letting agent fees which is another a big problem so, so we are, we're, we're moving in the right direction then that's something well thank I you mean, thank you very much for your contribution today steve it's been great to talk to you and uh, thank you everyone for listening goodbye if you enjoyed this podcast please don't forget to rate and review us on itunes